All right, are you guys ready for 2 Peter chapter 2? I've been dreading this day all week, so go ahead and open up with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. Um, I haven't really been dreading it, but it is quite the passage. Any, did anybody read ahead this week? Were you like, oh, good Lord. There's a few words that people don't like to talk about in church. Um, some of these include words like sin and suffering, uh, words like judgment and hell. Uh, these are not words that we like to talk about. And it seems like these are all words that Peter uses in First and Second Peter, and uh, stuff that we have this amazing opportunity to teach through. And my prayer this morning is that we can just take God's word as it is and bite it off this morning uh, the best we can and pray that God would use it to really challenge us and to equip us, um, to encourage us, and give us a proper perspective of who Jesus is. And um, yeah, so let, let me pray for us before we get started, and then let's read the text. Jesus, uh, we come before you this morning knowing, God, that there's no way for us to um, live these Christian lives for you without your strength. And God, we know it's by your grace We've been saved through faith, and so I pray this morning, uh, God, that you just use your word as a light, God, to shine it upon our life, to reveal the things that need to come out in us, God, to challenge us this morning, but also to encourage us and to equip us, God, because we so desperately need your word to be this plumb line, this, this guiding truth in our lives. We need to depend on you to lead us through your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so I ask this morning, God, that you just would illuminate this time and use it, Lord, for your benefit by your will, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Awesome. Second Peter chapter 2. We're going to uh, try to bite off 22 verses this morning, and I probably will not do a good job teaching through every verse in this passage, but I've got some sections that uh, I'd like to talk through. So, Second Peter, uh, chapter two, verse one. Say word when you get there. Awesome. Are you guys awake this morning? Okay. You know that Father's Day is the least attended church day of the year. That's pretty sad. Um, but I'm glad you guys are here this morning. You dads in this room, good job. You did it. And while everybody else is out on their boats, Second uh, <laughs> Peter, chapter two, verse one. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who, brought them, who bought them, bringing, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, yeah, this is good, yeah? And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering wrong is the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse 
with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he received a rebuke for his own transgression. For a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrain the madness of the prophet. These are springs without water and mists driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn away from the holy command, commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. Pretty hardcore, yeah? <laughs> what the heck should we do with this this morning? Um, start out with this. Who's Peter writing to? Just to remind us this morning, a little refresher. Who's Peter writing to in this passage? Churches, right? Churches who have been facing mass persecution, um, obviously, churches now who are all face, also facing this epidemic of false teachers that are rising up, convincing them, deceiving them, and veering them away from righteousness, away from Jesus. And it's interesting because like, I, I read this and you think, this is such a hardcore passage. I mean, I don't, I don't know about you, but even in this one reading, these 22 verses, you're kind of like, where the heck do we start? There's so much in this, and there is. But the, the overarching theme that I really want you guys to see this morning is this. Being a Christian is not easy, is it? It's not easy. And following Jesus in this world is not something that's to be taken lightly. It's not an easy task. It, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. It's a glorious thing. But it's not an easy thing for us to follow Jesus. Following Jesus is filled with joy and it's filled with hope and there's some really, really high times. Uh, it can lead to some of the most exhilarating moments of your life as you're following Jesus, but it's not some leisurely experience all the time. We, we don't just kick back and ride the wave of Jesus our whole life. It's hard and it requires a lot of us. And God knows that obedience is hard. God knows that following Jesus in this world is going to be difficult. So Peter said, if you go back to 2 Peter chapter 1, he said this, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. Like God didn't leave us alone to figure all of this out ourselves. He gave us his grace. He gave us his power and his promises to have all things necessary to live lives of godliness. He gave us all that we need in Christ. And the misunderstanding we often have is that God gave a, gives us grace, and grace makes it okay for us to disobey. You ever heard that before? Like grace sort of gives us this license to disobey. And many times we think that he gives us grace so it will actually make it okay when we fail and when we disobey. And there's a portion of this that is true, but in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter tells us that the reason that God gives us grace is not so that we will disobey and still feel like we're going to be okay after our disobedience, but the reason that God gives us grace is so that we will be actually enabled to obey. That's the purpose of grace, to enable us to be obedient in 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, if you remember back, he said this, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. 
He gave you all that you need. Second Peter 1 is basically Peter, Peter reiterating the, the fact that God says, I've designed you, I, I've created you, I've saved you, and I actually know how life works best for you. Like, would you trust me that I can grant you everything you need with regards to life and godliness? He knows how we're going to flourish. It will be trusting the Lord and obeying his word that actually leads us to these streams of living waters that allows us to flourish. Last week we talked about the importance of God's word, of truth, like it being this plumb line of sorts in our life in the midst of a world where truth has just become relative and you get to pick your truth. God's word is actually the truth. It's the plumb line and so we align our lives with it. We follow his word by the power of his Holy Spirit and that becomes the way of truth for us. It's not for us to determine what truth is and try to figure it out on our own and you have your truth and I have my truth and they have their truth. It's actually the truth is in the word of God. And, and so 2 Peter 1, it, again, is Peter reminding us that God's offering us this grace of this precious and very, very amazing promise, promises that come to all of those that would be submitted to the Lord. And then we move into chapter two, and um, God's going to, again, offer us his grace, but it actually looks and feels a little bit different than chapter one. It's his grace in a little bit different form. So in chapter one, God offers us this grace of his precious and great promises for all those that would trust and obey him. And then in chapter two, he offers us almost like the grace of his threats. There's this threat coming. He offers us this grace, uh, a grace of his, his like par- perilous and his terrifying promises for those who would turn away from him, but it's still a form of his grace. And so many of us get turned off to portions of scripture like this passage here because it's heavy, because it's weighty, because there's consequences, because it talks about a judgment, because it mentions hell. But oftentimes, the most loving thing we can do for somebody is warn them, isn't it? How many of you um, in this room, if you saw your child about to do something that could hurt them, would give them some sort of warning? Anybody in this room say, no, you wouldn't do that? I really want to know who you are. (laughs) I really like it when my kid gets hurt, you know, like, uh, I should warn him. No, go ahead and do it. I'd like to watch this. It's like a NASCAR race. And... uh, Most of us would warn our kids, most of us. But it's almost like sometimes the most positive thing we can say is actually kind of negative, isn't it? It can be perceived as negative. So let's just say that your kid is running near the the edge of a cliff and you as a parent see that they're getting extremely close to this edge and so you say something like, stop! You're about to go over the edge of the cliff. Stay right there. Do not move. You're going to fall off. And what if your kids stopped dead in their tracks and turned to you and just said, stop it. You're being so negative right now. (laughs) We warn people when there's some sort of harm that's about to be inflicted upon them. And you need to understand um, the context of this because this isn't Peter trying to be a jerk. This isn't Peter trying to just hold judgment and hell and, and torment and these things over you. This is Peter trying to give his last warning to the churches that he so desperately cares about. He's one last try. Like uh, maybe he's on his deathbed at this point and he's trying to get one last shout out. You guys need to watch out. Like, I do not want you to fall off the edge. I do not want you to get devoured by the wolves. I do not want this world to have its way with you. You've been given all you need through God's grace to live a life fully surrendered to him. Don't go that way. And so you could perceive this as really negative, Or you could understand this as God's grace working through Peter to actually challenge and warn and send this threat of sorts out to some churches who are on the brink of complete disregard and uh, and, and utter, like, bouncing their own way and 
walking away from Christ because they're being led by these false teachers. Throughout scripture, God is this loving heavenly father who's actually watching out for his kids. He's looking out for us and he does this. He he doesn't just give us this precious and amazing promise that he talks about in chapter one. There are times when he actually sends a threat and a warning. Be careful. Like if you're gonna partake in this promise, be careful to not be led astray by these things. Do not be devoured by the things around you. Like this world is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy to rob you of the life and the flourishing that God wants to provide in your life. And so this is where we're at today. I don't know about you, but are there ever times when you get to a portion of scripture and you think like, oh man, I really don't like what it says. <laughs> Have you ever been there? I feel like I get to sections and I'm like, I, I don't like it. Uh, it. It makes me uncomfortable. It scares me a little bit. But the question we have to ask then, if that's the case, is what lens are we looking at these texts through? Like, how do we actually process God's word? And so I want to ask three questions today concerning this threatening grace of sorts um, from God. One, when does God threaten? Like, when do we need God's threatening grace in our life? Two, um, what's the threat that is upon us that Peter's writing about? What's the threat that's facing the church at the time? And three, like, why is it grace? Like, God sometimes threatens us and it doesn't always feel like grace, but why is it grace? What is it about grace? And so uh, the first question I want to ask then is, what does God threaten? And I think in light of this passage, God's sort of threatening grace is for when there's a threat that's actually coming against his people. Like when, when there's a threat to God's people, when there's a threat against his people, God actually has a threat for God's people. And, and so it, it's a threat, but it's not to or against us. It's actually for us. It's actually to admonish us. It's actually to push us towards him. It's to propel us in our relationship with Jesus. And so when there's a threat in the, 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 the proneness of our hearts to run away and abandon him, this is when God steps in because he knows that we're prone to wander, right? That our hearts are prone to just bounce and jump ship and do our own thing and follow our own way, right? Proverbs says there's a way that leads There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And we are prone to following this way that seems right to us. And when there's that threat, God steps in. And so he he says in, um, Peter says this in 2 Peter chapter uh, 2, verses 1 through 3. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. They're active. They're actively trying to lure you away from truth, to deceive you. And so the, the, the clear and present danger that Peter is talking about was that, Peter, that, that there were these false teachers that were coming into the church and preaching a message that resembled the gospel to a form, but at the heart of it actually lacked truth. And, and the purpose of it was deception, to actually lure people away. And so there's this threat of like the, the, the proneness of our own hearts to believe false teaching. And this is serious. I mean, Peter, I, I, I don't know if I can convey this well enough as maybe Peter even felt it or does himself, but we have got to be careful. When I read this, I just think to myself, this isn't just some game that we're playing. There's souls at stake, lives at stake, your lives are at stake. Peter's not writing this just to say like, hey, 
go get them, you know, everybody raise their hand and give your life to Jesus, like, by God's grace, like, go live in the strength and the power of the Most High God, like, have, have a ton of fun with this, like, go, like, yay. Peter's saying, there's definitely an amazing promise offered to us in God, but there's also, this is a serious task that God's given us, to keep our eyes fixed on him, to steward the, our life and our heart in such a way that we're honoring Jesus, to look out and have discernment as to when things are getting off track and we're being led down a tangent that ultimately leads to our own destruction of our souls. So verse two, he says, many will follow their what? Sensuality. Many will follow their sensuality. Notice that in verse one, Peter doesn't just say that there are or there were false teachers. What does he say? That there will be false teachers. So this is future tense, there were, but he's also, there are, there will be false teachers. Like he's saying that false teachers weren't just around in the early church, but that any time, anywhere that the gospel of Jesus Christ is being preached, there will actually be false teachers who twist and distort that gospel message of Christ. Any point in time, it's happening just as prevalently today as it did back then when Peter's writing this to them. Make no mistake that there are false teachers today of God's word all around us, everywhere. And why is it that it's such a threat to God's people? Why is false teaching such a serious threat that God actually sees fit to threaten terrible things if we follow after what it is they're teaching? Why? Because there's certain things in this world that if we believe it, if we embrace it, it actually will destroy you. That's pretty serious. Look at verse one. There will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. There are truths in this world that if, if you ignore it or you believe it wrongly, it doesn't really matter. Like there won't be any consequences for that, right? Like for instance, um, if you believe that that sign right there is red, okay, you're wrong, but like, you can go ahead and believe that if you want. If you believe that those bleachers right there are green, okay, you're wrong, they're blue. I'm not colorblind. But it's okay for you to believe that. But there are really no consequences for you if you believe that those bleachers are green and you believe that that sign is red. There's no consequences for you in believing that. But there are other truths that we see in, scriptures, with, in Scripture with regards to Jesus that are so critical, that are so essential, that your eternity hangs on those truths. Your soul hangs on the truths in this book. And there were false teachers then, and there were false teachers today that aren't just teaching harmless things like that's green and that's red, but they're actually teaching things that if you believe or if you embrace it are things that will destroy you forever, that will destroy your soul. And, and so who are these false teachers and what marks a false teacher? I think those are good questions for, for us to ask. Who are they? What marks them? How do we see them? And there's three things I wanted to share with you. One is that they're, they're people that claim to be Christians. Two, that they're people that pursue the passions of the flesh. They're given into sensuality. And three, that they're people that were actually very likable. And so the, the first one, if, if you look at um, the, the beginning of that passage there, um, in verse one, to reiterate this point, there were people that claimed to be Christians. Look at verse one, what does it say? But false prophets also arose, what? What's it say? Among the people. So these false prophets that he's talking about were part of, they were kind of immersed in, mixed in with the Christians. They were among the people. So in other words, they didn't come from the outside, they actually came from the inside, which actually is quite scary to think about. These weren't just 
um, dudes on the outside. Like, like a, a Buddhist monk that's teaching uh, about Buddhism is not the false teacher that he's talking about. Do you understand that? Because the Buddhist monk is teaching about what? Buddhism. Like they aren't teaching under some sort of false pretense. They're teaching about Buddhism. But these are false teachers among them who claimed to be followers of the way, disguised themselves as believers when actually their purpose was to destroy the hearts and the souls of those that professed to follow Jesus. It was to lead them astray. And so the teachers that Peter's not talking about here um, are people who claim to be Christians and that were teaching about Christianity, but they're teaching, teaching a false variation of, a variation that's void of truth. And it seems like the, the false teachers of Peter's day were teaching that, that Jesus wasn't really human, that, that, um, that they denied Jesus' humanity, his incarnation, his death on the cross. They, they were saying that Jesus maybe was just God's spirit. Um, and, and so they taught that Christianity doesn't really have anything to do with the body. And so these teachers were teaching that what you did with the body doesn't really matter. And so they gave themselves over to sensuality, to sex, to these things. They gave themselves over to these things because what we do here doesn't really matter because we've been granted eternity. We've been saved by grace. And, and so for them, in fact, the, the more sensuality and sexuality that they pursue, the crazier it got. And so then you see this second mark of the false teacher, which we said was people that pursue the passions of the flesh. They, they, they pursued the passions of man. They pursue money. They pursue fame. They pursue sex. They pursue a, approval of man, notoriety. Like these things are important to them. They, they were saying that all that you desire, you're actually free to do it all. Whatever you want, partake in it. In verse, you go down to verses 14 and 15, he says this, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. And then go down to verse 18 and 19. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. They said things like, well, let's go on sinning so that grace may increase. Paul talks about this. They said it, it was for freedom that, that Christ has set us free, but because they had a wrong view, a wrong perspective of Jesus, they were coming to some wrong conclusions about what Jesus actually taught. And ultimately, this is what heresy is. It's something that points us to a false version of Christ. And so with all heresy, Jesus in some form or fashion is actually diminished. He's shrunk down. And so what follows is that his teachings begin to be distorted. His teachings begin to be manipulated and taken out of context. And actually, they, they use them to just extract their own truths and lead people into this false narrative. And that's what a false teacher does. It takes Jesus, diminishes his value and his worth extracts the good that they want to get out of that and just teaches people aspects of Jesus' teachings but not his full, like the holistic perspective of Jesus' truth. And so if you take the person of Jesus himself and you distort him, then you begin to take his teachings and you distort his teachings and it just continues to whittle down to the point that you start to buy into a false gospel that doesn't even represent what we're taught about in scripture and the life of Jesus. Three, the third mark of a false teacher, they're likable. And this is interesting because the, the reason that they are such a threat is because they're so liked and they're so winsome. People really get on board and enjoy them. False teachers don't get 
a, a good following by being hard and gruff. They, it's not like they show up in a black suit and you can tell them, you can you, like recognize them from a mile away and they, they speak with a certain accent and you get it right away. It's like they come in and it's, it seems like they're very likable. They're winsome. It seems like what they're talking about is actually has an element of truth in it, but doesn't represent the holistic perspective of truth. And so Paul even addressed this in Romans 16, he said, in verse 18, he said, for such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Sounds pretty gnarly. By their smooth and flattering speech. So when Peter says that they entice unsteady souls, and Paul says that they deceive the hearts of the naive, Paul says by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. So these false teachers were actually difficult to spot. They, They may not have been blatantly obvious for the church to see. And this is interesting coming off of the heels of chapter one last week when when we were talking about the importance of knowing, reading, digesting the word of God because how can you spot the fake if you don't know the truth? You can't. The, The truth is the light that God uses to reveal what's an imitation. And so uh, last week, you know, I felt like maybe I was too serious and maybe I am this week too, but it's so hard to see so many people that just put this book down and don't want to pick it up or have to pray to have a relationship with Jesus. But yet you get to passages like this and what you realize is if you do not read it, how will you know what is truth and what is imitation? How will you know? You won't. You will be led astray. You will be one of those that is deceived. You will be enticed. You are the unsteady soul that Peter talks about. Gnarly. It's interesting that the word that Paul uses for flattery there in the Greek actually means blessing in that Romans 16, 18 uh, passage. That when he says, and by their smooth and flattering speech, it actually means blessing. And so they they could have said something like, I have a word for you, brother. I want to bless you. And that was the flattering speech that they may have given. Like, I want to give you a teaching that's actually going to make your life easy, that's actually going to make your life better. Does anybody want that? Like, I have a blessing for you. And this is the flattery that, that, that Paul speaks of. But smooth talk doesn't necessarily mean slippery talk. You know what I mean? It, it, it's, it's hard to recognize. It, it, this smooth talk, when he talks about blessing, it actually it is pleasant. It's actually plausible. It, it seems to make sense. People buy into it. And the reason why these false teachers are actually so dangerous and such a threat to God's people is because they deceive. They, they point to this diminished and distorted view uh, of Jesus. And again, not in some sinister voice dressed in some black suit, but by being pleasant with plausible words and a warm smile, they deceive the church. Imagine, um, this is kind of a crazy example, but imagine some dirty shady guy pulls up in a black van in front of your house and your kids are out playing, right? He's like, hey, get in my car, you know, like, be like, no, that's sketchy. You know, your kids, no, we, stranger danger, right? Like, we, we know what sketchy looks like. That looks sketchy. Don't do that. But what about the dude that's like, hey, how are you guys doing? I'm like, come over here. Like, want to come hang out with me? Dresses like nice. He talks nice. It seems as though he cares. And even he resembles some sort of compassion. And these are the false teachers that begin to lure the church. They're they're hard to spot, and the only way to spot them is if you can go back to the Word of God and say, what does it say about Christ? Is the Word being taught? Am I understanding a full perspective of the gospel? Are we understanding heaven and hell, or have we written hell off completely and only believe this heaven? 
Do, do we understand the, the combo of spirit and truth, that we worship in both of these, that Jesus was the culmination of the two, that it's not about swinging one way or the other? Like, we have to read the word of God in order to understand what the plumb line is. But what is, what is it that God is threatening when God's saying these things when, through Peter? Like, what's the threat? If you read verses four through six, he says this. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. Like, these verses encapsulate what it is God's threatening. What is God threatening? He's threatening them with this swift and absolute judgment and destruction that will come through disobedience. These are the words that I hate to even speak on a Sunday morning. There's part of me that even preparing for this is like, ah, you want to walk out, you can walk out. <laughs> you, know, if you, you may not come back next week. These words like judgment and destruction are things that we don't like to talk about. And so we will look at passages like this and say, well, God did that then, but he won't ever do that again. And yet Peter's bringing this up. Peter mentions three groups that God's judgment and wrath fell upon. And his point was this. If God didn't spare these, then he will not spare any of us that reject him either. That's Peter's point. He mentions the fallen angels. He mentions um, the, 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 the ancient world, like the, the ungodly during the flood. Um, he mentions Sodom and Gomorrah. And he said in verse four that God did not spare angels when they sinned. Anybody struggling with that one a little bit? God did not spare angels when they sinned. And what was Peter's point? The angels, the, the, the most glorious and mighty beings under God, but that all their beauty and all their dignity and all their worth was of no use when they sinned. When they gave themselves over to sensuality. And God was unsparing in a sentence. And how is this applicable to you and I today, to the church today? The, the Bible also tells us that there's a certain dignity and a worth and value in us because we were created in whose image? Whose image were we created in? God himself. And what Peter's saying is that no amount of dignity and worth and value will spare you from God's judgment. Uh, if we diminish and we devalue the, the dignity and the worth and the value of Jesus, like no, no dignity and worth will spare us if we're actually dis diminishing the value and the worth of Jesus himself. Like your dignity doesn't grant you salvation. Your value doesn't grant you salvation. Like think about the angels. The angels were the closest in proximity to God himself, the closest to his word, like experiencing God himself. Think about the high position that they had, and none of these things made them immune to falling away. And so Peter's saying, just because I'm a pastor, just because somebody's an elder, just because you lead a community group, just because you lead a Bible study, or you read the word, or you've taken leadership, or you play a role in the church, don't think that you're immune to falling away and you're safe from being led astray by false doctrine. We have to be sober-minded, we have to be watchful, we have to pray, we have to pay attention to God's word. And then in verse five, he says this, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. What's Peter's point in bringing up Noah and the flood? Like, don't fall into the trap of worshiping a God of your own making or of your own imagination. Like, I, I hear people, claim to be Christians and say things like, I can't believe in a God that would send people to hell. Have you heard that? 
Like, I only believe in a God of love and acceptance and forgiveness. And so essentially what people are saying when they say things like this is just because you can't believe in a God who sends people to hell means that there's no such thing as a God who sends people to hell. Because you don't believe it, it doesn't actually happen. And so how do you deal with this flood as Peter brings it up, as he talks about it at the end of verse five there, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, those that were disobedient. People will say, I don't believe that part of scripture. Like I, I just write that, that part off and there's portions that I choose to believe, there's portions that I don't believe. And I guess I would ask like, how do you not believe that this or certain points, but believe other parts that you like, and what is it that determines for you what you can and can't believe? It all becomes relative at that point. You can't pick and choose. You can't have confidence in what parts of, uh, 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 you can't have confidence in what parts are true if there are parts that, that you um, point to and say that they didn't actually happen. And, and so I heard somebody once say that reality doesn't bow down to our beliefs, but that our beliefs have to bow down to reality. And so what reality says is that there's a God in heaven who actually destroyed an entire ancient world through a flood because they rejected him. That's pretty gnarly. And Peter's saying that judgment is real, that wrath is real, that hell is real, and that you won't be spared just because you don't believe in a God who wouldn't do such a thing. And then Peter says in verse six, and if you condemn the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives, they're like this, is anybody else struggling with any of this stuff? What's his point in bringing up Sodom and Gomorrah? Like he's trying to be clear and to the point. God actually punished his sexual sin. And we live in a world that has given over to it. And Peter's actually talking about false teachers that came into the church that actually struggled with it, that led people down that path and deceived them to partake in everything that their bodies wanted. And we live in a world today that says, go do what you want. Like your life is yours, take it into your own hands, experience whatever you need to, however you need to. And it's so dangerous. And Peter brings this up because he's saying, What happened then is no different than what's happening today and you need to be careful, you need to watch out because there are things in this world that will bring destruction upon your soul and it's no different than it was back then. So Peter says, don't forget about Sodom and Gomorrah. Like God does care about sexuality. God does care about sensuality and us, and us not being owned by it, not being driven by it, it not becoming an idol in our life. And Peter's saying God's judgment and his wrath are real. They did not fall on these people and, and they, or they, they did fall on these people and it will actually come upon us if we choose to partake in these things and give our lives over to them like they did. Do not be led astray, church. And these are serious threats that come against the church. And why is he so serious? Because the consequence for falling away is so serious. It's life and death. And God's threat is serious because the the consequence of falling away is serious. And it's like that parent that I talked about earlier that's standing there yelling as loud as they can, stop, stop, you're gonna die, stop. Why is the parent getting so serious? Because the parent knows that the kid is on the brink of something that they may not even know how this could end. And the parent can see it from a distance and know how this ends if the kid continues to go the way that he's going. And Peter, like a parent, is laying this out there for the church. I know how this ends. It's happened before. Don't put yourself at any higher a place than anybody else that was about you, because you could be deceived and you could walk away at any point just like people did thousands of years ago prior to this. 
today we stand at a point in time where I feel like it is getting worse and worse and harder and harder for us to take a stand for Jesus. And by that, I don't mean attending church and professing to be Christians. By that, I mean like devouring his word and being people that know him, that desire relationship with him, that want to walk with him. The last three verses, Peter says this, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they're again entangled in them and are overcome. The last day has become worse for them than the first, for it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. I'm gonna ask Jenny to come up here and close us in worship. There's like some theological things in verse 21 that we could spend some time wrestling through and at the end of the day, what matters is where your heart is right now. I'm not gonna argue the point of whether or not you can or can't lose your salvation and what it is Peter's trying to say here because I think at the end of the day what Peter's trying to say is be aware. He said it before, be sober-minded, be alert. Know that your enemy prowls around you like a roaring lion waiting to kill, steal, and destroy. Peter's saying, beware, there are false teachers among you. People whose mission in life is to veer you off course, to distract you, to convince you, to give yourself over to sensualities and the lusts of the world, to convince you that your body is yours and do whatever you want with it, and you can still, by God's grace, love Jesus. And God's grace was not for your abuse. God's grace was to propel you towards him because it's in God's grace that I sit there and go, this is a gift I did not deserve. This was something that was bestowed upon me by the brutal death of Jesus through the strength and the gift of his resurrection. And when we walk in God's grace, we don't abuse it and throw it out there flippantly and use it as license to partake in whatever it is we want to in our life. But my prayer is that we would take that gift that's been given you and treat it as such. It's a stinking gift, an amazing gift, God's grace. And how did God's grace come? His body broken and his blood shed. And he didn't stay on that cross, he rose again. And he rose again and he sent his Holy Spirit so that you could be the empowered believer to take a stand in the 21st century when everybody else is telling you to run your way and do your thing and follow your own relative truth, that you could be the person that stands in the midst of the plumb line and chooses Jesus and doesn't come across as legalistic and doesn't come across as somebody who just does all the right things and says all the right things, but somebody who feels conviction, somebody who senses the leading of the Holy Spirit, somebody who's strengthened by him, empowered by him, filled with joy and hope in the midst of all that they're going on and that's going on around them in this life. They're empowered to live this out, to have his grace be enacted in our life in such a way that we become followers, walkers with Christ himself, amen? And the only reason I would skip a passage like this is if I thought all I wanted to teach you was John 3.16, <laughs> which is easy. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I mean, that's, we can always go back to that. But if we're gonna say this is truth, then we're gonna believe from cover to cover that there's something in this for in every part of the story the narrative for us at every season and part of our life. Will you guys pray with me? Jesus, I want to thank you for your church uh, because I know that uh, the church did not come without a massive sacrifice on your behalf. And we stand here today, partakers of new life, Jesus, your word says that the old has gone and the new has come. God, that you've cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. I pray that we would be a people that would walk in the newness of life that you've offered us. I pray 
Jesus, that we would be people that would hold this word as plumb line in our life, that it would not be something that we file away on our shelves to just read when we need to get a little excerpt for an Instagram post or get a little excerpt for a season in our life when we just need a bit of encouragement because there are things we read sometimes that challenge me so deeply to the core. And God, I read this passage and it's just, I feel so convicted. I sense the weight of what it is we're walking out and realize, Lord, that what we do here on a Sunday morning for this hour and a half is a but a blip on the rest of the journey that you have us on. And there are those in this room, Lord, that even as we read through this today, know that they've wandered, that they've been lured down a path, and what started out as something small has just festered and festered and festered into something now where they just sense that there is a separation from you that they've never felt before because they've allowed all these things in between. Jesus, there's some in this room that have never made a decision to follow you before and struggle with this idea of heaven and hell. God, this message isn't about an escape from hell. This message is about new life in Jesus, the grace that you've bestowed upon us to walk in newness of life. And I pray for those in this room Lord, that I know fear the judgment and the hell message. But I'm praying this morning that what would overshadow the judgment and the hell message is the gift of newness in Christ, a new life that you're offering them as you reach out this morning and say, son, daughter, will you follow after me? Will you surrender your life to me? Will you give me everything? Will you devote your life to me and walk with me? And I pray, Jesus, that there be some in this room today that would make a decision to stop living their lives for themselves, being led by themselves, by their own intuition, to stop dead in their tracks, to humble themselves and submit their lives to you and say, Jesus, your way is better. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I pray, Jesus, that we as a church would just see the reality of this and know that every single day as we walk around in our community, placed us around people that we get to preach this amazing message of Jesus to. We get to walk it out before their eyes. And God, it's not a game we're playing. You've invited us into something that literally saves people eternally. And so I pray this morning, God, that we understand the weight of it all, that we submit our lives to you. And I pray, God, as we leave this place that your church would be enabled, enacted, like empowered by your Holy Spirit through your grace, God. Move in us, through us, around us, Jesus. And may you knock our socks off as we watch your spirit work in our county and in our community and bring people to yourself, Jesus. We love you and we thank you for this time this morning in your name.